Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and in this show, as always, we take a look at what's new in the Linux and open source world. So this week, we have a good progress report on the open source NVIDIA drivers, including NVK, and apparently they're already pretty damn good, not on par with the proprietary drivers, but they're not that far. Uh, we also have Microsoft shipping their new AI studio, which apparently requires you to install Linux to work. We have some more progress on HDR and color management on Linux. We have the Plasma 6 Beta 2. We have the release of Fedora Asahi 39 and a lot more stuff. So as always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links to the articles I use to build this show are in the show notes. And if you like what I'm doing here, well, you can always support the show as well by looking in the show notes. There are plenty of links to do just that. And if you want some Linux-related videos, you can check out the YouTube channel, The Linux Experiment. Uh, we have about 300,000 subscribers and we make, well, I make two videos per week about le the Linux desktop and open source stuff and privacy. So now let's get into it. So if, like me, you are an NVIDIA user, because I only run it... Well, that's not true. I run an NVIDIA GPU on my main Linux computer, but my gaming console running SteamOS has an AMD GPU. But if, like me, you use NVIDIA GPUs on Linux, you might have been waiting for the open source drivers to finally get good, because Nuvo can be used for very old NVIDIA cards, but everything else still requires the proprietary driver. But we've seen a big drive towards new open source drivers with the Nuvo drivers now supporting the GSP firmware, meaning you can actually use the normal clock speed of your GPU when using it. And we've seen the NVK driver, which is an open source Vulkan driver for NVIDIA. And so we have a big progress update from Faith Ekstrand, who is a developer at Collabora, and it looks like things are progressing pretty nicely. Over the course of 2023, they've implemented about 80 Vulkan extensions and almost everything that is required for DXVK to run. So basically anything required for Linux gaming is already in there pretty much. They also have implemented their new compiler for shaders, which seems really fast. It looks like it gives a 10 to 20% performance boost in certain titles and the driver passed the Vulkan 1.0 certification, so it's now fully conformant. And on top of that, as I said, the Nuvo kernel driver, which is needed for the NVK driver, because NVK is just to run Vulkan, but you do need a hardware kernel driver to talk to the GPU, and that's Nuvo, it now supports the GSP firmware, so the drivers can actually use the correct clock speed. And so with all of this, with this first beta quality prototype for NVK drivers, it looks like it reaches 40 to 60% of the proprietary driver's performance on a lot of games. So obviously it's simply not as good as the proprietary drivers, that's normal, but for a first release that is not even completely out of beta, it's actually not bad. And it means that a bunch of games can actually be played at acceptable frame rates already if you have a recent GPU. If your display doesn't go above 60 FPS, then there are a bunch of games that you'll be able to play at max settings at 60 FPS. It's not gonna be the best performance you've ever seen, but it's gonna work. 
And apparently the NVK driver also beats the proprietary driver, at least in one of the tests that they did, uh, which is the game A Hat in Time. The NVK driver reached 210 FPS, and the proprietary driver capped out at 165. So it's not in a bad state. And for 2024, their goal is first to support Vulcan 1.3 fully. Uh, this should land around March, apparently. And this means the drivers uh, will actually be out of beta. Everything needed to use it will also be available since then, because it will be shipped in the Linux kernel 6.7, which should release in early 2024. Well, the GSP firmware stuff should be in the Linux kernel 6.7, and the NVK driver is part of Mesa, so you'll get updates as normal for any open source driver. And after that, they will focus on improving the performance and adding the necessary features to run DirectX 12 games through Proton, and they will add other architectures like older NVIDIA GPUs, they'll try to add support for that as well onto the driver. So it is really encouraging and solid work. And I know, like 40% of the performance of the proprietary drivers that you can install in one click is not really acceptable right now. But do remember that it's a just a first usable version of the driver. It's still pretty much a beta. It's a prototype that just implements the stuff but has no performance work done whatsoever, or at least not a lot of it. So I am pretty sure that performance parity will be reached relatively soon, or at least close enough that people will find that it's an acceptable trade-off. Because a lot of people have problems with the proprietary NVIDIA drivers. I can't say that's my case. I've always had a very good experience with it. Ever since I started this channel in 2018, I've basically only used NVIDIA drivers uh, and NVIDIA cards on Linux. And I didn't really encounter many problems apart from screen tearing in 2018, but that's completely gone right now. I don't have many issues. But for a lot of people, the proprietary drivers are pretty crappy. And so if... I tell you, hey, you can either use the proprietary drivers with problems using Wayland, problems with screen tearing and other issues, or you can have like 80% of the performance, but you have a fully open source driver that actually completely works. I'm sure a lot of people will accept the 20% performance loss and wait for that to be fixed. So I am very excited for this new driver. I'm looking forward to 2024, where I'm sure a bunch of distros probably at the end of the year, we'll start using this by default on supported NVIDIA GPU. I, I would be surprised, for example, if Fedora didn't implement that out of the box for GPUs that are supported, just to not have to use the proprietary drivers, which are not part of Fedora's ethos, because it's really meant to be as open source as possible. Now, more interesting work on the Linux desktop is also done on color management and HDR, and we also have a nice progress report on that, uh, at least for the KD side of things, because they seem to be the ones pushing this fast. Uh, I don't think I've seen much from GNOME yet on support for HDR and probably nothing from other desktops right now, but KDE Plasma already has a bunch of stuff in place. Uh, KWIN, which is the KDE Plasma compositor, now supports ICC color profiles on Wayland in Plasma 6, meaning that if you have multiple displays or just one single display, you can just click on that in the display settings page and select a color profile for any of your display, and the compositor will adjust the colors as needed to conform to that. It is still for now limited to sRGB, which means you, you can't really do other color spaces, 
per the color management protocol for Wayland that is needed to support all these other color spaces is also moving along. And apparently System76, uh, who makes Pop! OS and a bunch of Linux hardware, they already developed a Vulkan layer that can use that recent uh, protocol and implement other color spaces. So color management on Linux probably coming uh, sometime in 2024, which is nice because for professional work, it's a problem uh, to not have that. And so once it's implemented, we might actually see more professional apps come to Linux because they will have the building blocks needed to actually perform as normal. Now for HDR, Plasma 6 already lets you enable it in the display settings, and you can also set the brightness of SDR content and the color intensity. M much like what you would find on the Steam Deck, where you have that, that color intensity slider, uh, it's basically the same thing, and it's there to let you adjust uh, how SDR content will look when you have enabled HDR, because if you enable HDR but you're playing SDR content, it's gonna look very muted and, and very sad, and so you might want to just pop the colors a little bit and improve the brightness just so it doesn't look so out of place. And Plasma 6 also already ships with an experimental implementation of full-screen HDR support, notably for playing games. We already talked about that. Now, it still requires you to jump through a few hoops. You have to install GameScope for a lot of games. Uh, you have to add some environment variables. You have to install stuff from Git. It's not a one-click like, hey, I'm just running this HDR game, turning on HDR, and it works. It, it, it's not like that, but it does work if you jump through all the hoops. And so the next steps in 2024, probably after the release of Plasma 6, of the stable version of Plasma 6, their goal is to simplify things. So you don't have to turn to the command line. You don't have to install some unstable stuff from Git. Uh, you can just like run your HDR game, say I want HDR and it works. Uh, same for a full screen movie or, or TV show or whatever. They also want to implement HDR screenshots and HDR screen recordings, which is also pretty cool. So that's really good work. This is also something that should land during 2024. Uh, if uh, Christian Schaller is to be believed, he's the director of desktop at Red Hat, and he talked about a bunch of future Linux technologies recently. I covered that on this exact podcast a while back. Uh, and he said that basically AGR work should be there uh, in the middle of 2024. So that's something we can look forward to. And I can finally, well, I will finally be able to use my HDR capable display at its best, which is really cool. And so maybe I'll be able to bring you HDR videos if they're only screen recordings, which is also pretty cool if uh, if YouTube actually supports that properly. So yeah, nice work there. Now a bit of a fun piece of information. Uh, it looks like Microsoft knows that Linux is the best option for a lot of dev work because they just released their tool called AI Studio. It's a tool for developers uh, to let you basically run AI models and, and program stuff uh, based on AI. And this AI Studio actually installs Linux to work, Linux inside of Windows. Uh, it requires at least Ubuntu 18.04, and it runs locally on your system on Windows, but it uses the Windows subsystem for Linux to install Linux and then the AI Studio on top of that. Uh, it also only works uh, with NVIDIA GPUs for now while the tool is in beta, which is sort of weird because NVIDIA and Linux aren't the combination most people would pick. And so, yeah, when you install this AI Studio, you're basically using Linux, not Windows, even though it seems to be packaged as a VS Code extension, which 
obviously has a Windows version. Now, what this tool does is basically just compiling a bunch of AI-related tools linked to Azure or Hugging Face to download and use various models from these catalogs. But yeah, I just wanted to mention it because it's pretty funny that even Microsoft cannot bring themselves to develop tools for the Windows base. Uh, they, they just want you to use Linux to do some dev work with WSL. It, it, they just know, like they know most people doing dev work want to use Linux. And, and, and why would you not? Because it's objectively a better option for a lot of developers. So yeah, pretty funny thing. Now, this week saw the release of Firefox 121, and it's it's a, not a huge release, but the main thing is that it now comes with Wayland support enabled by default. Firefox already supported Wayland. You could enable that support by using a environment variable. Some distributions shipped it with Wayland support enabled, some didn't. Uh, and if it didn't, it could work on Wayland, but it was using X Wayland, which meant a little bit of performance loss and some features not working as intended, like for example, touchpad gestures to go back and forward or smooth scrolling or just better responsiveness, better video playback, less battery usage. Basically using Firefox with Wayland support if you were running Wayland was sort of mandatory because it just made your experience with the browser much, much better. So now with Firefox 121, if you're running Wayland and you use Firefox, you're gonna use the Wayland version of Firefox, not the X Wayland one, which means you'll get access to all the nice features. If you don't use Wayland and you use X11, you will still have a fully working version of Firefox. Don't worry, they are not cutting off support for X11. If the Wayland version doesn't work well for you, you can still run the X11 version using X Wayland. No problems here. Uh, personally, I only had one remaining bug uh, with Firefox on Wayland, and that was with KDE and fractional scaling enabled. Uh, every menu that I opened, like a right-click menu or the main Firefox menu or right-clicking a tab, anything just displayed a completely cut-off menu. It wasn't full-size. I couldn't see all the options there. And it was also placed very weirdly uh, on the screen. Uh, this has been fixed. I'm happy to report uh, with at least the Flatpak version of Firefox 121 doesn't have the issue anymore. Uh, so it works well, and I'm very happy about that. So I can now enjoy all the touchpad gestures uh, that I use all the time to go back and forward on my laptop. Uh, I use that all the time. And smoother scrolling, and better battery life, and better video playback. And I don't have this stupid freaking issue of menus not opening where they were supposed to, and me having to just guess where the option is by using the arrow keys and pressing enter and hoping I selected the right one. Now, 121 also has a bunch of other changes, but there are smaller ones. There are WebAssembly enhancements. It now supports more CSS features. Uh, and when you use uh, the PDF viewer inside of Firefox and you want to edit a PDF to add fields or, or fill in some stuff, uh, you'll get a floating button that lets you get access to all these tools more easily. So I'm still glad to see that my last remaining bug with Firefox is now fixed. Uh, pretty cool to see. And yeah, so I'm still going to enjoy Firefox on Wayland and KDE, which is really nice. And speaking of KDE, Plasma 6 got its second beta release. Uh, it's just a compilation of all the bug fixes 
and the small features here and there that the KD team added, even though it was supposedly in feature freeze, but they still added a few changes. Uh, so it's just a compilation of all of that, because obviously the alpha and the beta have been tested by a lot of people, they gathered a lot of feedback, a lot of uh, bug reports, and they are fixing most, if not all of them. Apparently the number of bugs is now going down, which means that even though people are still reporting them, uh, they're reporting less than what is being fixed, so that's a good sign. And at this point, Plasma 6 is still planned for the end of February, uh, which is really cool because it's been a long while since we got a new major Plasma update. It was KD 5.27, and I think it was in March 2023, uh, which, yeah, it's gonna be almost a full year uh, for, for between the two releases, so it's pretty nice to get that. Now, obviously, it's still a beta, it's beta 2, so it's not fully stable. Use it at your own risk. Uh, it does include updates to all the default apps that are included in KDE Gear, all the KDE frameworks that everything is based on, and the Plasma desktop. And if you think it might be mature enough for your use case, you can give it a shot already using KDE Neon Unstable. I'm sure other maybe rolling release distros will have packages in their repos to let you install that and, and test it out if you want. But the recommended way seems to be KDE Neon Unstable. Now, on top of that, there also seems to be a new KDE theme being worked on called Breeze, which, yes, uh, the default theme is called Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z-E, -E -E, uh, and this new theme is called Breeze, which is B-R-I-S-E. It's the same word, but spelled as it is spelled in French or German. It means the same thing. It means Breeze. And for now, it is not a big departure from the current Breeze theme for KDE, it does implement a few changes. And basically, the goal of this theme seems to be a sort of testing ground for changes that might land in the future in the default Breeze theme. So for now, the changes are a configurable border radius on buttons and frames. Uh, you can choose, I think, three, five, or seven pixels. Uh, so you can configure that. There are a few improvements in the search fields to better separate uh, the title of the field and the contents. There's a new tab style that removes the colored accent uh, that the Breeze theme has. There's a new style for highlighted menu entries that removes the more opaque outline around uh, the highlight. It also unifies the height of all the controls in the KD theme. For now, it really does look like the normal Breeze theme. There are not many changes apart from spacing and height of elements, but it does seem to aim at being more coherent to bring a nicer looking experience with less, oh, there's two text fields next to each other, but one is like one pixel higher than the other, so everything looks a bit weird. Basically, they're gonna try and fix most of these issues inside of this theme. It's co-installable alongside the normal Breeze theme, so you could have like the experimental new stuff and the normal uh, KDE theme. I think it's a good idea because KDE definitely needs a refresh of the Breeze theme. Uh, it's a personal opinion, but I think what GNOME does with Libadvita looks much better than the KDE Breeze theme. It's too big, like Libadvita has way too much padding, and on the same display, uh, one looks already pre-scaled, basically. It looks scaled at 125% compared to KDE, uh, but in terms of pure looks, I think Libadvita looks much better, whether it's with the dark mode or the light mode. And I think KDE's Breeze theme should get updated because, yeah, it, it just looks a bit old at that point. 
Uh, I know they're already working on the icons for Plasma 6, at least the folder icons, and it's probably going to trickle down to other icons as well. So I really hope that this new Breeze theme uh, will serve as a proving ground for a bunch of stuff that can then be merged into the default theme uh, when people consider that those changes are good enough and, and actually bring something in terms of usability and looks. Because yes, a theme is just looks, but it's not really, is it? Uh, because... The theme also conditions how things look, how things, how legible things are, the usability, the contrast. And so it's not just, oh yeah, well, it's just a theme. It's actually very important uh, for how people can get to grips with your desktop. So it's not just a, a look and feel thing, it's also a UX thing. And I think in terms of usability, KDE's theme is fine, but in terms of looks, it feels a bit dated. So yeah, I hope they're gonna use that, uh, put that to good use and actually improve the Breeze theme using that. Uh, they're already doing a few things in Plasma 6 on that front. Like they're removing some of the extra borders that you have. KDE ads generally are very modular and they have frames that you can move around. And those frames have borders and they're placed inside bigger containers that also have borders. So sometimes you have like three borders side by side and the current frame that you're in has a highlight around it, which means that you end up having something that looks pretty heavy, even though the interface is pretty simple. Uh, my main example that I have open right in front of me is QO Notes. Uh, I have a title bar and toolbar that looks nice, and then I have two lines, uh, some items, two more lines, tabs, two more lines, uh, the content, and then there are lines that, that separate my content from a frame, that is itself having another frame around it. It looks very heavy for no reason. So they're only fixing that. Maybe they can do a bit more on the, on the style of buttons, on the style of controls. It would be pretty cool to see. Now, if you use an Apple Silicon Mac and you want to run Linux on it, uh, you have basically one option, which is Azahi Linux. But it is also very bleeding edge. It's basically Arch with like the latest drivers the Azahi team works on, which means it's not stable at all. So you'll be happy to know that Fedora Azahi 39 is now out. And it is basically Fedora, the Fedora experience, well, with KDE by default, but there is a GNOME variant available. Uh, but on top of that, they add all the stable drivers and hardware work done by the Azahi team to support recent Mac. So I'm saying stable drivers. It's not exactly 100% stable because what's entirely stable is already merged into the mainline kernel. Uh, but it's still more stable and will move less fast uh, than what you would find on Azahi. So you're going to have a more stable experience with that. Now, the GNOME and the KDE versions of uh, Fedora Azahi do default to Wayland. The Azahi team absolutely doesn't seem to want to work on a pure X11 session. And for good reason, because why would you spend time supporting something that everyone is currently trying to abandon? It also includes the recent OpenGL conformant driver, and it adds high-quality audio support, something Azahi fixed recently as well. Back when I tried Azahi Linux on a MacBook Pro, it was a few months ago, it did not support uh, the speakers or the headphone jack port, uh, which kind of sucked because, I mean, speakers I don't care, but the audio jack I need it. Now this is fixed, uh, so it does support audio on most, if not all, current Apple Silicon Macs, which is really cool. Obviously, it's not fully perfect yet. Uh, even with Azahi Linux or Fedora Azahi, you don't get a Vulkan driver. So there's a lot of stuff that you can't really do. You have support for OpenGL, but not Vulkan yet. 
and certain hardware features don't work. Uh, you cannot plug an external display using a USB-C port. Thunderbolt and USB 4 don't work either, so I think all ports are treated as USB 3. The onboard microphones uh, don't work either. Touch ID doesn't work. Uh, but since I reviewed Asahi Linux, they added support for the camera, for the speakers, and if your Mac has an HDMI port, you can use it to output to an external display. So it looks like it's actually sort of usable right now if you have enough ARM-compatible software in your distro's repos, which I think is still a bit of an issue for certain use types, but if you're just using your, your computer to type some stuff, to get the longest battery life you can, to send some emails and stuff like that, everything you need will be supported in there. You have web browsers, you have email clients, you have office suites, you have everything you might want to use on there. Uh, it's just for maybe, I don't know, even maybe even Blender and Caden Live might have ARM versions as well, so maybe you could even do some, some video editing, 3D modeling and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, so if you have an Apple Silicon Mac, but Asahi Linux just moves too fast for you, breaks too many things all the time, try out a Fedora Asahi 39. I think it's a good compromise. Uh, you're getting recent hardware support and you'll get updates throughout the life of the distro. You're not stuck on this current hardware support, which is cool. And I might give this distro a shot at some point uh, just to compare uh, this one with Asahi Linux and see how well I like the experience in both. Now, if you're about the same age as me, which is uh, like you were born in the 1980s, uh, you probably know about Flipboard, because this thing was all the rage back when smartphones began getting popular, uh, around 2008, 2010, uh, because it was a new way to get like personalized news on your smartphone, something you couldn't really do before. Uh, Nowadays, I'm not sure Flipboard is that popular, but it's still a nice content aggregation tool, and it looks like they want to pivot to support the Fediverse. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's basically this aggregate of various social networks and apps. It includes Mastodon, PixelFed, PeerTube, Castopod, and a lot of other things. It's basically based on a protocol called the ActivityPub uh, standard, which lets every social network communicate with each other, so you can only use one account that you created, for example, on Mastodon, and you can still uh, follow PeerTube channels, Castopod podcast, uh, PixelFed posts and stories and videos, uh, Mastodon posts, and you can comment on that, and no matter the platform people are using, they will see your comments, they can react to them, etc., etc. So it's basically an interoperability standard for various social networks, and it's already working really well. So Flipboard will replace all of their social backend with ActivityPub, uh, which is really cool because it means that you will be able, inside of Flipboard, to follow posts from various publications, various individuals. You'll be able to follow podcasts, videos, uh, WordPress websites, and a lot more, all in one single feed and one single app, much like an RSS feed reader would do, but with a nicer user interface. Now, it will also let you comment on any of these posts, videos, podcast episodes, or whatever, and all these comments will show under the relevant posts on Mastodon, on Threads, on PixelFed, on Castopod, or whatever other app supports ActivityPub. So it's a two-way thing. You can follow people from anywhere, you can interact with them, and they can interact back with you no matter the app that they use, and you will also see their comments and stuff like that. So this transition should be fully enabled in April, which is pretty neat. 
and they're apparently working in a considerate way. They're thinking about moderation, uh, which instances they're going to let through or not, because obviously it's like something where anyone can create a server. So some of them are really nice and friendly. Some of them are pretty horrible. Uh, some of them express positions that you would never say face to face to anyone else. So you want some moderation in there and they're thinking about that. And they all they are also thinking on how they will avoid overwhelming smaller instances uh, because I guess Flipboard still has a lot of users. So if you if a ton of users start commenting on a single post of a very small instance, uh, maybe it might destroy it because it's not built to handle all of that load. So they're thinking about that as well. So the, they're not just rushing in. It's pretty cool. Uh, and if we add that to Meta. Uh, their Threads app, which is basically Twitter, but from Meta, uh, they're also starting to test their ActivityPub implementation. Uh, so if you add that to Flipboard and to WordPress that now supports ActivityPub, you have a solid path towards a more open internet, at least in terms of social networks. Uh, you, you're not siloed anymore into a specific app. Like if you have a Threads uh, account, you can still talk to people using Mastodon. Well, you will be able to talk to people using Mastodon. You'll be able to follow uh, podcasts from Castopod to interact with YouTube channels. And people using Mastodon will be able to follow people that are only on threads, even if they don't have a Mastodon account. I think it's a pretty cool thing. Like you might say, oh no, big companies joining our, our decentralized network, they're gonna eat us up and transform the protocol. And since they're gonna be so big, everyone will be left out. But uh, they... Why would they do that? Because uh, if they transform the protocol, then they are not federated anymore. And so why would anyone do that? Because the only reason to implement ActivityPub is to be federated with a lot more people and a few other apps. Uh, so I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's a good thing. It opens up this idea of a more open internet, a more open social network, where you can basically just like email. If you use Gmail, you can still talk to someone using, I don't know, Outlook.com or, or your own email address or, or Caramail or whatever else you might be using. Uh, and it should be the same for everything on the internet, including social networks. Just because you decided to have an Instagram account uh, shouldn't mean you have to create a Twitter account and Facebook account and a Threads account and a Flipboard account. You should be able to just have one account for your social networks and interact with anyone, no matter the app they're using, and view all their publications. And opening more people up to this idea means that more people will actually expect that from other social networks. And if this works for Meta and Threads, I would be surprised if they didn't also add this kind of activity pub integration into Instagram, into Facebook, and other things. And that would be a net positive for everyone because I don't want to have a Facebook account. I don't want to have an Instagram account, but I would love for more people to be able to see what I post on, on Mastodon, what I post on PixelFed, uh, my Castopod podcast. And if every Facebook user or every Instagram user is now able to follow me from their chosen app and their chosen account, even though I don't use their platform, then it's a net positive for me and it's a net positive for them because they're not cut off from anything they might want to read. And I'm not cut off from people who actually want to watch what I make. So I think it's a good thing and I hope this is what we're going to see, uh, that this activity pub thing is going to take off and that all social networks will join in it and it's just going to be a, a nice, fun, happy place. And you still have moderation options if you don't want to see people from threads or whatever. Your instance can always block them or you can move to your own instance that doesn't federate with them. You decide, but in the meantime, for most people, it's a net positive.
Now we also got more details about Thunderbird's Android version, which for now is still the open source K9 mail app, but it will turn into a full Thunderbird client in the future. Uh, so the app has now been moved to the Mozilla Thunderbird developer account. So if you go on Google's Play Store uh, and you look at uh, K9 Mail, the developer should no longer be K9 Mail developers. It should be Mozilla Thunderbird. Uh, and they've also upgraded a little bit, uh, a, a few things here and there in the app. They've implemented some usability fixes on how to handle permissions uh, because the app asked you if you wanted to grant it access to your contacts, which is like sort of interesting uh, to actually send emails. And so this permission could pop up over and over again if instead of answering the question, you press the back button because this didn't count as a deny uh, option. So now they implemented this in the uh, account creation workflow. They also added a permission screen to allow for notifications in the app, which is mandatory for Android 13 support. Uh, they also added a better screen to manually configure IMAP and SMTP settings uh, if that's needed for your account. They've implemented what's required to support Android 13 and Android 14 support still needs a bit of work, but it's coming. And this leads us to when the app will actually be released as Thunderbird for Android, when it will no longer be K9 Mail. And initially the plan was to release that at the end of 2023, that's not gonna happen. Uh, they moved that to uh, the beginning of 2024, but that's also not gonna happen. It kind of moved to a, it will be out when it's ready sort of time frame. Uh, because basically K9 Mail already works. You can already install K9 Mail and use it as your mail client of choice on Android. It already works. It's already really good. Uh, and so they they don't feel any rush to actually change the branding to Thunderbird before they actually implement everything that they want to implement in it. And I think that makes a lot of sense because it's better to only associate your name and your brand and your logo to an app that supports all the features a user might expect. If someone already uses Thunderbird on Linux, macOS, Windows, whatever, they have an expectation for a certain feature set, uh, for tags, for maybe some extensions, for maybe some things. And if you want them to be happily surprised by your Android app, then it should have a lot of these features that people actually expect. So why change the branding right now when there's no rush and the app already works? No reason. So they, they might as well just wait. And I think it's a good move. And they've also clarified one thing. Apparently they will keep K9 Mail around as a separate app. It will be the exact same app as the Thunderbird app once it's transitioned in terms of branding. Uh, just the branding will be different. It's It will be called K9 Mail. You'll get the current icon and the current branding everywhere. So if you don't like Thunderbird's logo and branding, you will still be able to run your usual K9 Mail app uh, just as it looks right now. And I think that's a cool move. It, it doesn't cost them much to build the app in two separate ways with two different branding packages. It's not a lot of extra work to publish that. So they might as well do it and, and keep everyone happy. If people don't like the Thunderbird brand or don't like Mozilla for some reason, well, they can use a Mozilla app but not have the Mozilla branding, I guess. Uh, so that's pretty nice. So yeah, I agree with that decision. I think it's, uh, it's normal to not want to rush this. It adds nothing to users to just change the logo right now compared to K9 Mail. So you might as well wait for all the features you actually want to be implemented before you migrate to the Thunderbird branding. Now, in terms of security, there's a new attack and vulnerability. Well, three vulnerabilities that allow one attack for SSH. Uh, the attack is called Terrapin. And it's an interesting one because 
It's a man-in-the-middle attack, which is something that SSH was thought to be pretty much immune to. Uh, for it to be possible, the attacker needs to already be in a position where they can execute a man-in-the-middle attack on your systems, and the SSH connection must be encrypted using one of two cipher modes that were added a decade ago. Uh, it might seem old, but apparently 77% of SSH servers exposed to the internet do support at least one of these two cipher modes, and I think it's 57% of SSH servers have one of these as the default mode. And so the way the attack works is by corrupting the information that is transmitted through the SSH connection during the handshake. The handshake is the first step of the connection where your client and your server are trying to establish a secure connection. They're saying, hey, I'm going to use this protocol to encrypt. Uh, are you a a okay recipient for that. Yes, what are the keys that you're going to use to secure this? These are theirs. Okay, uh, this works. Uh, let's establish the secure connection. And so at that step, uh, the Terrapin attack removes a number of protected messages that are being sent for the handshake, and this can result in encryption not being applied, but the connection still being established. And so the piece of software placed in the middle of the connection can get access to what is being transmitted. Uh, so this is being made possible by three uh, CVEs, so vulnerabilities. Uh, if you want to know yourself if you're vulnerable to this attack, there's a custom scanner that the researchers who found out about this have developed. You can just run that. It's basically the attack, but it doesn't execute it. It just checks if it's possible and it's going to tell you like, yes, you are exposed or no, you're not. Fixes should be available soon if they're not already out by the time you're listening to this but you might also want to change the cipher mode uh, your SSH server or client are using to not use one of the two protocols that are affected just to be on the safe side. Of course, the severity of this attack depends on what you're doing with SSH, and it's not a huge problem. It's no surprise that vulnerabilities are discovered in SSH and other like security-related projects. It's the backbone of most internet-related infrastructure, so... It's normal that people find new ways to attack that, and it's normal that researchers are interested in finding those attacks before someone actually uses them. Okay, and now we'll finish this with a short segment on the gaming news. Uh, first, we got a new release of Proton Experimental, which is probably what you should be using to run most games, unless the game doesn't run with Proton Experimental on Linux, and then you use the latest stable version. Generally, it adds so many performance improvements and support for new features that it's always better to set that as the default, and if the game doesn't run, you move down to the latest stable version. Uh, Proton Experiment also adds a, a hack to allow the Steam overlay to be displayed when you're using a game that runs with Easy Anti-Cheat provided by the Epic Online Services. There are two versions of Easy Anti-Cheat, uh, one that is linked to an Epic Games Online Services account and one that is just a local implementation. Uh, so it's the first one that uh, prevented the Steam overlay from being displayed in some cases, so now that's fixed. And uh, Proton Experimental also adds HDR support for a few games, uh, notably Devil May Cry 5 and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 Plus 2, so the, the remake, remaster, no, remake, uh, of those two games. Uh, on top of already supporting HDR on Resident Evil 2 and 3 remakes, on Resident Evil 7, on Resident Evil Village, Mass Effect Legendary Edition, Hogwarts Legacy, and a lot more. And, as always, Proton Experimental also fixes a bunch of issues with various different games. It 
like I said, just enable Proton Experimental as the default in Steam. Uh, for most games, it's gonna give you a better experience. And if your game experiment experiences performance issues or crashes, just downgrade that to the latest stable version. And on top of that, we also got a new version of VKD3D Proton, which is the VKD3D version that Proton uses, not the same as what is available for everyone else. Uh, it's the DirectX 12 compatibility layer, and it implements a bunch of fixes as well, notably for NVIDIA GPUs and for DirectX ray tracing. And it also adds a much better implementation of Microsoft's anti-aliasing uh, in DirectX. So that should improve performance all around and give better visual results for a lot of Direct 12 games, DirectX 12 games. So that's also pretty solid. Uh, you can get that already by downloading it yourself and installing it in your Proton directory in the compatibility tools.d folder. But you might also just want to wait for the next version of Proton to implement that. I'm pretty sure Proton Experimental already has uh, that new release uh, bundled within it. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. As always, if any of these topics tickles your fancy specifically, you can jump down to the show notes and click on the associated links uh, to learn more about them. And if you enjoy this show and you want to support it, there are plenty of links in the show notes to do just that, uh, whether it's through Patreon, LibraPay, or, or just like a one-time donation through PayPal. Uh, as a side note, I will start doing little daily recaps of the Linux and open source news uh, from Monday to Friday, uh, only for Patreon supporters of, of the podcast. So if you go to the Patreon page and you subscribe to any tier starting in January, you will get a short daily episode, five to 10 minute stops with everything that happened uh, in the previous day in the Linux world. Uh, so if you don't want to wait for the end of the week for your for your dose of, of Linux and open source news, uh, consider subscribing to the Patreon and starting in January, you will get access to this new thing. So thank you all for listening. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.